let's ask God to help us understand his word. True and living God, we do thank you that you have gathered us to hear your word and we pray in your mercy uh, that you would make yourself known to us so that we would know you, know what it is to trust you and be confident in you. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand what we hear and believe and receive it as your word, the word of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not a hope. You hear that uh, said from time to time, don't you, about some competitor in a competition. I think they've probably been saying it about Carlton all year. Uh, and I suspect you would say that about me if I told you I was going to cycle the Tour de France even before you saw my profile in Lycra. <laughs> Not a hope. Well, it's actually what an unbiased observer would have said about Israel's occupying Canaan, coming to dispossess nations greater and mightier than them, cities great and fortified up to heaven, with a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Israel had neither the technological sophistication nor military prowess to defeat well-defended positions whose soldiers' strength was proverbial. Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Not a hope. And I guess it's what you might be tempted to say when knowing yourself or knowing me, you thought of the possibility that you or I would be able to live forever with a holy and just God. Live forever in a new heaven and earth. Not a hope. Yet Israel did have a hope. A hope given them, verse 3, by the Lord. A hope in the Lord. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly, as the Lord has promised you. Moses calls Israel to know that despite their own weakness compared to the Canaanites, they have a sure hope. A sure hope because the Lord has committed himself to do for them what they could never do for themselves, to do for them what they could never do for themselves, drive out the Canaanites. Now, why does the Lord give them this assurance? Why can they rely on it? That was important for them to know because there on the banks of the Jordan River, they've come to the point of decision. Will they make their plans, direct their course, cross the Jordan, engage in deadly battle with hostile and more powerful nations on the basis of God's promise or not? And it's actually important for us to know that we can rely on the Lord's assurance, on his promise. For Jesus calls us to direct our lives, make our plans, be distinct from the society around us on the basis of his commitment to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to raise us from the dead and to bring us to live in the new heaven and earth. We need to know the Lord's commitment is reliable. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
We are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, the whole Christian thing is just a miserable dud. So why can the commitment of the Lord be relied upon? And on what basis does he make his commitment? In this case, his promise to Israel. Well, Moses gives them a surprising, even discouraging answer in verse 4 and following. He starts by telling them what is not the reason the Lord has made this commitment to them, what they can't rely on. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. The Lord's very clear, isn't he? He's not committed to giving Israel the land because they are good, or at least relatively better than the Canaanites, the present occupiers of the land. Possession of the land is not a reward for their righteousness or moral superiority. The nations of Canaan will be driven out for their wickedness. Now, as the driving out and destruction of the Canaanites is an issue for some, <coughs> a kind of belief blocker, Let's pause and think about God's judgment on the Canaanites. Let's think first about the reality of the driving out of the nations. As we learned back in Deuteronomy 7, this driving out was about destroying the infrastructure, the shrines and statues of idolatrous religion in the land so that the Lord's sole sovereignty over the land would be established and so that there'd be no competitor for the loyalty of the Lord's people. And we learned in Deuteronomy 7 that it would be gradual. He won't make an end of them at once, but he'll clear them away little by little. But for those who would not leave, as this gradual clearing gave them opportunity to do, for those who would not leave, there would be total destruction. Now, we find that destruction hard to understand because we as a culture are focused on the individual, and we have come to see religion as a private, personal choice. But it would have made sense to ancient peoples who saw themselves as a collective and their religion as tribal. That is, they saw their religion as the currency of their relationship with the gods that you just had to use to be a member of that tribe, just as today you have to use the currency of the country you're in to participate in its economy. It was one in, all in. And here we learn clearly that that dispossession was just. These nations were judged, we're told, for their wickedness. Now that judgment wasn't some kind of impetuous reaction to some small fault. God had waited patiently. Genesis 15, roughly 400 years before, we're told that God was going to wait because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. He was patient. 
And Leviticus 18 and 20 recounts some of the sinful practices of those nations, things it says God hates and for which the land vomited them out. Those nations were engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality, sexual exploitation, and even, we see in verse 21, child sacrifice. Our society tends to think of sin as just some small naughtiness and thinks that we can separate ourselves from our sins. You know, I may abuse you, but that doesn't make me an abuser. But sin is not an accident, something that can be separated from us. It comes from our hearts, says our Lord. Our sin is both a condition and a behaviour. It describes who we are as well as what we do. And sin's not just an idea or concept. Sin is, well, the real things we do and say and think having real consequences in our own lives and the lives of others. Sin is serious and ugly, distorting, destroying, impoverishing and oppressing people. And God's word says that he is the just judge of all the earth. And so this judgment of the nations of Canaan is, is, is an example, in a sense, of God's judging of sinful nations, a type of God's final judgment when he will judge all. And yes, also a reminder that the Lord is active in history to carry out his just judgments. And it's for that reason our society is very hostile to God's action here. It's not just because it is awesome and collective. It's because we're increasingly accepting of the sexual practices condemned in Leviticus. We share those sins and don't want to think they'll have consequences. And we are, as a society, hostile to the very idea of judgment, hostile to the thought God judges us. Because that's a threat to our practice of behaviours we love and claim to have a right to do, and it marks the failure, that judgment marks the failure of our rebellious idolatry where we put ourselves in the place of God. Judgment reveals that our godlike pretensions are a lie and that the true God is God. And we're hostile to the thought that God is active now in history to execute his judgments because we don't want to think we have to live conscious of God and his judgments, take him into account in our decisions, in the way we live our lives. And our culture has sadly insulated itself from the reality of judgment through, amongst other things, embracing the folly of single explanations. Where, because, for example, we know drought is the outcome of climatic patterns, we say it cannot also be because God has decided to punish us as a society for our sins. Now, believers should not fall for that lie. You see, Jesus taught that the sun's rise, for which we have a credible physical explanation in the earth's rotation on its axis as it orbits around the sun, that the sun's rise is also the Lord's work. He makes the sun to rise. And so, with these events, it's not either or, it's both and. And the tragedy is that in the face of the hostility of our society to judgment, 
many believers seem to have become embarrassed about judgment, to have gone quiet on it. Now, I can understand that at one level. I mean, it's less distressing, isn't it, to not have to think that friends and family will face God's just judgment. And by becoming silent, well, we make ourselves less different and less criticised, and we have less need to disrupt our lives by telling others about it. But the cost of going quiet on this gospel truth, and judgment is part of the gospel, the cost of going quiet on this gospel truth that the Lord is the active judge now and at the end is that we become less concerned with holiness for we forget how serious God is about sin and then we become less in awe of the cross of reckoning with the full cost of our salvation and we so, so we know less gratitude and our Christian lives are weakened and impoverished. Our embarrassed silence is a tragedy in a society that deserves judgment and where we know how to escape judgment through trusting in the Lord Jesus. Here's scripture. God judges nations as well as individuals for their wickedness. We ought to believe it and pray that we will live different lives, the lives of those who know they will give account. Pray that the Lord would raise up faithful gospel preachers who will declare both the reality of God's judgment and how to be saved from the wrath to come through believing in Jesus. Pray that the Lord would raise up faithful gospel preachers and that they will get a hearing and pray that God will save, rescue many. Some of us may disagree with the means by which Israel Folau raised the issue of judgment with his Twitter followers. But shouldn't we be grateful for the opportunities he's given us to have serious conversations about sin and judgment and forgiveness? And if you are tempted to criticise him for what you think was his clumsiness, do you think the Lord will be more pleased with you if you never warn your friends and family of a reality the gospel convicts us of, especially where we're raising it to share the way of escape. The Jesus who saves us is the Jesus who can save them. But the point Moses is making is that Israel must not think it is their righteousness that's earned the Lord's commitment to them, made them deserving of his action on their behalf. For those, verse 15, are not righteous, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. They can't even console themselves that, well, they meant to do well, they just kind of didn't carry it off. No. The fact is, verse 6, they are exactly the opposite of righteous. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. This, says Moses, is Israel's reality, stubborn people who deserve, persevere in doing what they want, not what the Lord commands, rebellious, 
provoking the Lord to wrath. And in case they missed this assessment, Moses repeats it for them throughout this part of his speech. Four times he calls them stubborn in chapters 9 and 10. Actually, it's the Lord's verdict. The Lord said to me, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Twice more he repeats that they are rebellious. Rebellious from the day, says Moses, that I knew you. And he lists those times when they provoked the Lord to anger by their disobedience. Taborah, Massa, Kibroth, Hatavah. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? But is it? No, no, it's just realistic. Their stubbornness, Israel's stubbornness and rebellion is clearly evidenced, repeatedly evidenced in their behaviour. And to see how ingrained this rebellion is, well, look where it starts. You heard that in the reading. Verse 8, Moses takes them back to Sinai and his recollection is vivid. He takes them back to how when they'd heard the Lord speak to them directly, how when they committed themselves to living his way, doing the covenant, how as soon as Moses had gone up on the mountain to receive the written copy, the permanent copy of the covenant, they had done exactly the opposite of what the Lord had commanded and they committed themselves to. They had made and worshipped an idol, the golden calf. Now Israel's behaviour at this point can only be compared to a husband who on his honeymoon visits a prostitute while his wife is out doing the shopping. It's that bad. And it wasn't the only instance of unfaithfulness. Moses lists other examples, including the episode he started Deuteronomy with, their failure at Kadesh Barnea to go up and occupy the land. Each place name in verse 22 stands for an incident of disobedience, grumbling and complaining about food or water or how tough it was, doubting the Lord's goodness and his power. You see, the Israelites can't come back and say, Moses, you're just putting everything we do in the worst possible light. We're not that bad, really. No. They were stubborn in their unfaithfulness, rebellious, deliberately defying the Lord's command, fully deserving the Lord's wrath. Their behaviour threatened the very existence of the covenant, seen in the shattering of the stone tablets by Moses as he comes down the mountain. Their behaviour threatened their continuity as a nation. And that's the reality. You see, the reality is that Israel is more of a threat to the fulfilment of God's promise to them than the pagan nations are. It's not the sons of Anak that will keep them out of the land. It is their own constant provocation of the Lord by their rebelliousness. How can God keep his promise to them when they bring upon themselves by their own actions his wrath and judgment? And before we leave Moses' blunt statement of their lack of righteousness, their deserving of judgment, before we answer how Israel can be confident that the Lord will keep his commitment to them, we have to recognise that we are like Israel. We are no better than them. If we have a hope of eternal life, it's not because of our righteousness. 
That's the scripture's verdict. All have sinned. That's you and I included. And that's not trivial. Oh, that was the reality of believers in the first Christian congregations. Hear this infamous passage, 1 Corinthians 6. He talks about all kinds of behaviour, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, people who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers. And he says, and such were some of you. And it wasn't just the Corinthians. To the Cretans, he says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and love of kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared, that changed. But it's not because of our righteousness. And that's not just the verdict of Scripture either, is it? I mean, if we're honest, that is our lived experience. I expect we can all look back to before we believed, even those of us who grew up in Christian homes and were shielded from some of the worst excesses of our society, we can all look back and see in our lives, well, things like sexual immorality or greed or lying or pride. I can. And it's actually not just before we believed, is it? After becoming Christians, even now we know we sin whether it's, for example, giving way to anger and bitterness, to secret lust, to greed and envy, whatever. We are the threat to coming to the fulfilment of what the Lord has promised us. We. So how can Israel have a hope? How can we? Well, how was it that Israel continued to be God's people after that golden calf incident. Why weren't they destroyed? Well, Moses records his pleading with the Lord on the mountain. Then I lay prostrate, verse 18, before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. He interceded for them. And what was the content of his appeal? On what grounds did he ask the Lord not to destroy Israel as they deserved? Well, he tells us in verses 25 to 29 a slightly fuller account of the content of his appeals than that which you'll find in Exodus 33. And this appeal has a recurring theme. Listen for you and your as I read it. Verse 26, I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to be put to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Did you hear it? Moses appealed to the Lord's past action, his rescue of Israel. He appealed to the Lord's ownership, the fact that the Lord has entered into a relationship with Israel, that Israel are his and known to be his. In verse 28, he appeals to the Lord's proper concern 
for his reputation, how he would be slandered and misrepresented as being like the dumb idols or worse, as malevolent if the people perished in the wilderness. So what does Moses appeal to? It's the Lord's gracious identification of himself with this people, that the Lord has tied his glory, his reputation to their salvation, to doing for them what he has promised. It would be dreadful, unthinkable, Moses says, that the world would not know the truth of God, would not know that the Lord is the living God whose word is always fulfilled. And the Lord heard that prayer of Moses despite the appalling rebellion of Israel. And we know that because here they are listening to Moses on the border of the promised land. Do you see, it is an extraordinary thing that the Lord should identify his reputation with our salvation, that he should tie his glory to fulfilling his promise to his people. But he has, and there is security and hope for his people in that. But why would the Lord, the almighty, holy God, tie his reputation to such sinful people, people he knows are stubborn and rebellious? Why cause himself such provocation and grief? Well, Moses mentions it at verse 27. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He returns to it at verse 14 of chapter 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that's in it. He is sovereign over all things. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as you are this day, set his heart in love. And that's a theme that Moses has spoken of throughout these speeches, isn't it? Remember Deuteronomy 7, where he said to the Israelites, verse 7, It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So why do these sinful people have a hope? It's because of God's choice, God's choosing of their fathers and making a promise to them and in choosing them, choosing their offspring. They have a hope because of his gracious promise. No other reason. And why did he choose their fathers? Because he set his heart in love upon them. That's the explanation. God's love freely, sovereignly bestowed and there is nothing behind that. So why can sinful, rebellious Israel have a hope, a sure hope? The Lord's decision to love, which flows from who he is and is expressed in his gracious, merciful commitment to them. And yes, his determination to be true to himself, to who he is, and have his truth known. Israel could have a sure hope because of him, the Lord, who he is, not them. And if we're believers in Jesus, it's the same. We have a sure hope because of him, who our God is, 
and not us. But there is a problem. Did you sense it as you were hearing Deuteronomy 10 read? Verse 17. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice. The Lord says he executes justice as he, well, is about to do on the Canaanites. And he says he does it impartially. And Israel was wicked like the Canaanites. And the Lord has already said that if they became like them, they would suffer, chapter 8, the same fate. So how could Israel now be treated differently? Escape judgment. Come into the land. Oh, we are wicked. How can we be treated differently? Differently even from Israel. Israel did lose the land in the end because of their sin, because the Lord judged them like the nations. How can we have a sure possession of eternal life? See, won't bringing sinful Israel into the land trash the Lord's reputation just as much as giving them what their sins deserve, destroying them in the wilderness? Won't saving Israel mean the Lord can only love, only keep his promise at the expense of his justice, make his judgment seem arbitrary? And won't that, having to abandon his justice to promote his people, reduce the Lord to just another tribal God, just promoting his people so his people will promote him, dependent on them for his presence, more concerned for their ritual honouring of him than their hearts and lives being given to live just and righteous lives. <coughs> Won't saving Israel make him a diminished God, not the God of the whole earth, a God we could never trust unless we've somehow bribed him to be on his good side like all the other gods? How could the Lord save Israel and be true to his name, his revelation of himself, save them and not have his glory tarnished by them. Actually, how could he save you and I and still be the God we can trust, always true and faithful, always separate from and opposed to our, destroy, our destroying, life-denying, people-using sin? How can we have a hope? Well, praise God, the scripture says it is because Christ is better, greater than Moses. Hebrews tells us that Moses was faithful as a servant, someone who interceded with God on the basis of God's action and promise. But Christ is the son in the house, not the servant. Jesus is God, the son of God. He doesn't Relay revelation, he is God's revelation himself. He doesn't appeal for salvation. He is God acting to save. Jesus is God being faithful to his character in saving and at the same time God acting to preserve his reputation before his enemies. 
That is what is happening on the cross. See, think of it. On the cross, here we see God's justice. Sin being punished as it deserves with death. Our sin being punished in the death of our Saviour. And here is God saving, delivering from death by atoning for our sin through the death of Jesus. And yes, on the cross we see God's extraordinary love going beyond anything that could be expected or asked for. And yes, there he demonstrates his faithfulness. He keeps his promises and is seen to be the thoroughly good God. Not malicious, but God for us. God for us at the cost of the death of his son. Now sometimes we talk as if those things are just ideas. But the cross is real blood, real humiliation, real shame, real pain, real grief. For Jesus is the real incarnate son. And he comes to the cross for us. It is done for us to keep the Lord's promise, to be loving and just, and to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to bring life for our death through giving up his life in death for us. Do you see the wonder of the cost God pays to set his love on his people? to make a promise and keep it, to give you and I, if we are believers in Jesus, assurance that what he has promised, resurrection life, is sure. Do you have a hope? There is only one in whom we can have hope, the true God, Father, Son and Spirit, the true God who is true to himself and so true in all he says and promises. The God who graciously loves, who freely shows mercy, while always being the just and holy God who will not allow his glory to be tarnished by failing to be himself or failing to do what he says. The God who deserves all our praise for who he is, loving and just, faithful and true, Almighty, the God who deserves the worship of all our lives as the fruit of our faith in the gospel that Christ the Son has died for our sins. That's actually what Moses calls for from God's people. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. We love and serve the Lord Jesus as we progress through life by doing what he says in all areas of life. <clears throat> and while Israel failed in this worship, this is what God makes possible in the new covenant. That circumcised heart, that heart, that will given to do God's will, where the law is written on our hearts so that we delight in loving what God loves and hate what he hates. And there's one aspect of our response to God's grace that Moses describes here that I want to draw 
to your attention because actually the Lord emphasises it by singling this concrete command out from the generalities of our response. <clears throat> he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The Lord wants his people to come to love those who are like them. For Israel, sojourners, to come to love them in the way and because God has loved Israel, protecting, providing, rescuing. Now, believer in Jesus, in response to his grace that has given you this sure hope, the Lord wants you to love those who are like you in the way God has loved you. And who are those who are like you? Well, what we see here is that the Lord loves, loved you while you are sinners. God shows his love for us in this, writes St Paul, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the Lord wants you to show love to sinners in the way that he has loved you, a sinner. And how has he loved you? Well, think of that. He sought you. That's why you're here listening to his word. So you should seek. He called you through his word. So you should share the word in which you have come to know his love. He has forgiven you. So you have to forgive those who repent. And yes, he deals patiently with you. So shouldn't you be patient in your love of those who say may not want to hear what you have to say? Not a hope? No, if you're a believer in Jesus, you and I, we have every hope of coming to share in the resurrection, of being spared that judgment sinners like us deserve. Why? Well, it's not because of our goodness before or after we believed. It's because the Lord, Father, Son and Spirit has committed himself to saving all those who believe in Jesus because he has joined his glory to doing for you what he has promised. And why did he make that commitment? Well, it's because of who he is, because he loved, because he set his heart in love on Jesus' people. And the measure of that love, and it is great, is the giving of his son. And in that giving, he has shown that he will always be himself, the true God, just and righteous, faithful, almighty, the God of steadfast love, the only saving God, the God who, because he is true to himself, we can rely on completely, the living God, the only God, who is worthy of all our praise and service forever. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that tells us that our hope is in you, the almighty, gracious, just, holy and loving God. We thank you that you are always true. 
We thank you that you are committed to your glory, your reputation, and that in that commitment you are also committed to doing for us what you have promised us in our Lord Jesus. We thank you. We thank you that you have acted in love. We thank you for your gracious promise. We thank you for securing your glory and our salvation in the death of your Son. And we pray that we will give you the worship of the whole of our lives, the worship you deserve. And especially we pray that we would love other sinners as you have loved us, that we would seek as you have sought, that we would share with them the word that you have brought us to hear that gives life. And we pray, gracious Father, that you would open the hearts of those who hear that word and save them as you have brought us to life through faith in your Son, your beloved Son, Jesus. We thank you and praise you for who you are, our great God, Father, Son and Spirit. Amen.